You are listening to How We Got Loud. I'm your host, Chris Leonard, and I want all of us to go on a journey together exploring stories about the people, technology, and passion that built the history of live sound. Do you ever reflect on the feeling of finally getting to be where you dreamed of as a kid? It never went away for quite some time that I'm mixing front of house for Van Halen. And, you know, uh, 10 years ago, I was a bar band guy in Vancouver. You know, it just, it never went away that, uh, that it was just an unbelievable dream come true. Um, but I think, I'm sure so many people will understand is you, um, you know, you're just, you're in it. You're, you're in the moment. You, you, go through your day, you make sure the PA sounds as good as it can, you do line checks and sound checks, and um, you're just always hoping that uh, people are going to go back and say enough nice things that you get to keep doing it, you know? I often take time to remember where I've come from as I grew up as a kid putting gear in the back of a station wagon almost every weekend doing shows with my dad at coffee houses and bike rallies. There are distinct memories of listening to Jackson Brown's song, Stay, on repeat as we drove home from gigs and would dream of the day that I would get the chance to go on tour. Well, I was fortunate enough to go on and become monitor engineer for artists like Tears for Fears and Josh Groban. I've had the pleasure over the last year to be able to get to know Jim Yakubuski, also known as Jim Yak. He has become a regular guest on the Sickle to Noise podcast, where I am also a co-host. We barely scratched the surface on this episode with Jim, who is in the 39th year of his career as an audio engineer with artists like Van Halen, Journey, Peter Frampton, Avril Lavigne, Matchbox 20, Rob Thomas, Gwen Stefani, just to name a few. He also has over 20 years of doing freelance corporate work for major clients like Nike, Microsoft, Walmart, the NBA, with production companies such as OSA, Creative Technologies, PRG, LMG, and many more. Today, let's take an early look at how Jim was able to have such a successful career. So, Jim, how did you get your start in audio? Um, well, uh, first, it was just interest and passion in in you know dissecting uh, my favorite bands, you know, studio records, and trying to figure out how they did that and how, you know, I I was never really the typical musician turned audio guy. I was, I was just a guy who heard music and thought it would be great to know how they did that. So I, when I graduated, I took a a six month uh, recording school uh, in Vancouver at Columbia School of Broadcasting and um, thought that that was the road I was going to go down. And then all of a sudden, um, a friend of mine from my hometown, uh, uh, came to live in Vancouver and got a gig as a singer in a band. And I threw it out there that I was learning how to do audio. And the next thing you know, I quit my job. I'm on the road and I'm doing live sound in, uh, 1981 without any idea what I was, uh, what I was doing. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a very, uh, very similar story for a lot of people there. Just, uh, had no idea what we're doing, but Hey, this is, this is fun. Let's go do this. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you definitely get to learn on the job and no one's going to hold you too accountable for your 20 to $50 a week paycheck that, that we were making. So, so, so beyond recording school, what was, uh, what was some of the first gear gear you were touching? 
Um, I actually did a little research last night and try and tried to find the first console I ever touched, and I think I found it. Um, it was made by a company called Neptune NEI, and uh, the I think the one we had was the XM one sixty four, which was a sixteen channel four bus um, analog audio console. So I think that was the first one. I think the the uh, speakers we had a you know two double 15 base bins, um, a double 12 mid thing of some kind. And then, a you know, a, a fill a shave kind of, um, high, you know, high box on top of that. And that was our PA system. Um, I want to say we used Yamaha amps and eventually changed to Bryston four B's the, the big old beasts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was very simple and there's actually kind of a funny story that I tell, about my first night uh, mixing because I had no EQ in the rig. So <laughs> it's like, um, you know, I, I didn't know enough to know I needed an EQ in my PA system when I started. So um, it was very bare bones. So what was that story? Well, um, <laughs> um, so it's night one. We, we've been struggling all day to get rid of hums and buzzes in the PA and just do a sound check in this this bar in the Vancouver area. And, um, so, you know, it's time it's 9 PM. We start playing and, you know, everything is ringing all the toms and the kick drum are just open and ringing. There's no gates. I mean, it's all just, it's just a catastrophic what's happening and, and it keeps feeding back in the low end. And my only defense is to turn the volume down a little bit. So we get to the end of the first set and uh, the band comes back and they're like, man, you know, it's kind of rough. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure what's happening, you know? And um, they're all rolling their eyes and these two long hairs walk out of the, uh, out of the, you know, smoky haze of the bar and come up and start looking at our gear. And, and they said, Hey, you know, it seems like you're having some feedback trouble. And I said, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not really sure you know, what, what, what I can do about it. And they said, well, we're, we're, we got a little rehearsal room just down the way. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got a EQ in there. We could bring it over and, and patch it in for you. And, and I looked at these guys and I go, oh man, you know, I don't know how that's going to help. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that was my humble beginnings night one of my career. So that's amazing. That's, that's, that's good. So how did, um, how did, how did things progress from there for you? Um, you know, like anything, um, we all learned all of us, you know, we were all so invested and just so, uh, jacked to be doing this, you know, the band members were kind of new, but they <clears throat> had been playing in their basements forever. So we all learned sound together, which was pretty cool. Our, our lighting guy that we had, you know, was just as excited about, the sound getting better. And we just very humbly asked a lot of questions. And when we needed to add one more piece of gear like that EQ that we got the next week, um, you know, we, we, uh, we did that for, for many years, the bands changed over time, but, um, you know, eventually we learned you needed, you know, noise gates, you needed a couple compressors and, uh, all these analog pieces. We got a better mixing board. We got, uh, better speakers. And just over time, it, it all slowly got better. And, uh, that was, that was like the first five years of climbing out of, you know, infancy as a club audio guy to, to, um, getting ready to move to the next stage. 
So back back in those club days, how much of that gear was uh, still some of the the homemade gear, and how much of it was like off the shelf? I mean, it was still pretty early on of off the shelf gear, I imagine. Yeah, it it was though. It was. Um, I don't think we ever used uh, a speaker system that somebody built in their garage. It was all um, some brand name. We actually um, we the 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 first PA that we had that we transitioned uh, to the next one. It was a Martin PA. Um, the, uh, gosh, what did they call those things? They were, um, it was kind of a flared horn front on the, the bass bins. And then the, the Martin double 12, they called them a filler shave cause it looked, looked like the top of a electric razor. Um, but, uh, that was, that was when we actually got a real, that, that was a good sound PA. Um, but yeah, we didn't, uh, we didn't ever have someone building consoles or, or anything for us back. Uh, I think I just missed that era a little bit, which was probably a good thing in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> so what? Uh, how, how did? What was your? What was your big break? How did you get into more of the the A level world of uh, of live sound? Yeah, I, um, you know, being a Canadian, I, um, I, I knew that the states was kind of the place to go to uh, be on these big concert tours and stuff. But I, I never really imagined that I could get there. And so I, um, I knew there was a lot of great Canadian bands back then that were, um, doing Canadian tours. And I knew some of the Canadian companies like Jason sound in Vancouver. And, uh, there was some really good East coast companies, uh, Toronto based. And, um, I knew, you know, if I could get in with one of those companies, I could move to that next level. So I sent out, uh, you know, handwritten letter, uh, kind of resume and, a plea for a job with, with these companies. And I I didn't hear back from one of them. It was really discouraging. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll make the story short, but, uh, the way it all turned around was I met a waitress in a bar who had a DB sound t-shirt on and I asked her about her shirt. She was very rude to me thinking I was trying to hit on her. And, uh, (laughs) at the end of the night she said, Hey, sorry for being so rude. It's just all the sound guys always want my shirt. And I said, I, I said, I don't want your shirt. I want a job. And she goes, Oh my gosh, well, let me see what I can do. So her, she, um, had been dating, uh, Harry Witts from, um, from DB sound. And, um, she, you know, called him up once a week and, and kept saying, Hey, have you hired that, that guy from Vancouver yet? And finally he just relented and hired me in the summer of 86 to go down and do Summerfest in Milwaukee as a, as a patch guy and, uh, audio tech. And that was, that was the big break. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's the power of, uh, of, of marketing on a t-shirt back then outweighed that's just right. about anything, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty funny. Yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> it was very random and very lucky that, uh, that it actually worked out. And a lot of my friends who were working with these big Canadian companies and mixing, uh, the big bands at the time, they, they just couldn't believe that I had made this leap right past, uh, everything. I mean, the second night, I was in Milwaukee, you know, I was patching the stage and doing line checks for Bon Jovi. And I was like, you know, how did this happen? It was absolutely amazing. So what, uh, what, what type of gear was around when you walked into that gig? What, what type of uh, stuff you're working on? Uh, yeah, I, I was very overwhelmed because of the size of everything. You know, we, we had these little, 
uh, AC distros, you know, with a stove plug on the end that we carried around when we were in the bars. And now all of a sudden it's, you know, uh, five wire cam lock, uh, AC, uh, systems and, and, um, you know, racks and racks of amplifiers and, and distribution, multi-pin cross-stage drives and all that. And, and I had no idea I had to learn all of that. Um, the speakers were huge as well. Um, DB sound used to have, uh, these old, um, very massive speakers, a, a, a low box and a mid high box, and they were huge. And, uh, it was called the HP system, the high power, uh, system, all, uh, proprietary built by Harry Witts and, uh, and the manufacturers, the guys, the design guys at DB sound, um, console wise, some Midas's we had, uh, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember the name now. The, um, uh, the, 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 the four, what was it? Not the XL four, um, pro four, maybe Midas pro four. Does that sound kind of familiar to you? Um, uh, I'm not sure, but I, I'll look it up. <laughs> yeah. I think it's the one that, uh, that, um, they took out on ACDC, um, maybe 10 years ago. Um, hmm. Pab, the front of house guy for, mm-hmm. uh, ACDC, he had Harry Witts, uh, and, and, uh, those guys restore an old, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a pro four, but, um, very, very cool. The, I remember the first time touching a console like that and just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, it's like eight feet long and f- four feet deep. You can barely reach the game <laughs> knob at the top, but it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Um, you know, Yamaha's, there was, uh, uh, XL threes and, and, um, you know, uh, trying to think what else Yamaha had out then. Um, but, um, that, that was, uh, that was still, you know, and actually uh, DB sound had a, uh, proprietary console that they had built. They called the mothership, which was, uh, Harry Witts had built this massive, you know, console that only DB sound had. And, uh, it broke a lot, but when it worked, it sounded great. <laughs> that sounds like a very common theme of uh, most uh, consoles of those days. It, you know, like the Paragon to stuff like that. It broke a lot, but when it works, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you always had to have the rubber mallet, you know, in your in your toolbox to give the, you know, give the input card a, a thump to get it going again. So you. You go to this festival. You're you're now doing a gig that you probably you, you were dreaming of, but never, never maybe never thought you would actually get there. What um when you got done that first gig, do you remember uh where where your head was at? Was it like uh, can, can I handle this? It's like no, I I need to pursue this. What was what was running through your mind then? Yeah, I um you know I I, I was on high alert just all the time because. I realized how huge an option this was for me, an opportunity, um, to be able to work in this world. And I'm a Canadian guy who's, who's, uh, around all these, you know, these Americans, um, and, you know, they're going to get first dibs at, at this gig unless I really over, uh, you know, achieve. So I, I, uh, I was very thankful to be there and I, I worked really, really hard not to, 
um, not to appear out of my league, even though I, I was on a lot of levels, but, um, but I, you know, even then, even on that first two week gig, and then I did another one right after that in Minneapolis. So for the first month, it was just like two festivals I was on, but, uh, on the, on the second gig, I was front of house, uh, tech for this festival. So I had already kind of moved up to where I was handling all the engineers as they came in and showing them the system. And, um, but I, I was already then thinking, I can't wait till I get to mix, uh, you know, on these incredible systems. So I, I, uh, I didn't take too much time to soak in what, where I was. I was, I was always looking ahead to the day I get to be mm-hmm. an actual front of house engineer. So when, when was that? Um, I think like a lot of people, I started, um, as a monitor engineer and usually uh, monitor engineer for the, the opening acts. So, so I would kind of be the, the system tech for the monitor engineer and the patch guy. And then, you know, if there was a band that didn't have an engineer and the monitor engineer for the headliner wanted to have coffee and, and chill time on the bus or whatever, um, they would ask me, do you, you know, do you want to do monitors? So, uh, my very first professional monitor mixing gig was for Ingve Malmsteen and the rising force. Um, <laughs> and, uh, this, uh, just unbelievable, uh, virtuoso guitar player was opening. I think I want to say it was on, I was one of the audio guys on a triumph tour. And, um, I think that was my, my first opportunity, but, um, yeah, I'm standing behind a, <clears throat> a huge Midas console in a arena, which I'd, you know, never really mixed sound in an arena before. And there I was pretending that I did this all the time. And that was, uh, (laughs) that was what I, I did. So it took, it took quite a few years, um, to actually get to be asked to be, um, the mix engineer on a big tour, but it, it eventually came in, but it did come through the monitor mixing side of things. Yeah. And so in this whole time you were, you were full-time at a company, right? You weren't, you weren't freelancing. Uh, yes, full time with DB for um, for most of those years, and and actually, um, you know, I was still this guy who needed to get you know his paperwork together, kind of thing at first. So when things got slow in the winter, uh, they would send me back to Canada, and I would work with a bar band again, and and uh, just kind of regroup. And that was one of the reasons I was on that Triumph tour was because they had uh, a bunch of Canadian guys. And so I just got on their visa list, but it took me a while. I eventually got my green card and, um, and I was able to, to stay there full time. But, um, but it was, uh, yeah, I, I never really delved into the freelance world until 1991. And that was the first time I did a tour for somebody else that wasn't DB. So let's walk back to, so what was that first, uh, first front of house gig for you? Uh, you know, real, real front of house gig. Um, well, let's see. I, so I, I was the monitor engineer, uh, in 1990 for Aerosmith. I jumped in and DB sound had that account and they, <clears throat> they wanted a, a new monitor engineer for the band and Steven Tyler had his own guy. So I got to be the band monitor engineer for the second half of the pump tour, which was amazing. And then right from that was when I, I, I did something for another company, which uh, was a one audio at the time. And I was a monitor engineer for poison. 
And then from that, meeting Scotty Ross, the tour manager, he got hired by Van Halen. And then I became Van Halen's monitor guy. So now I had three monitor gigs in a row. And as grateful as I was for this unbelievable luck, I was also going, "Uh uh-oh, am I... (laughs) Am I pigeonholing myself as a monitor engineer now? So um, <clears throat> the way it worked out was in um, 93, the guy who was mixing, who had mixed the 91 tour front of house, he couldn't do the 93 tour. So I uh, I called Eddie at his house and petitioned very hard with much praying happening that, uh, that he would give me a shot at front of house. And so I, I got that. Um, I had mixed couple shows. I did one for uh, Ted Nugent and uh, some damn Yankee stuff. So I was getting a, a chance to do a one-off, but my first real touring front of house mixing gig was with Van Halen, which is just, that's just incredible to even say that, but that's, that's how it happened. Now that, that is amazing. So uh, did you have a uh, rehearsal time or was it, did you hit right to a, a first show with them? Um, we had rehearsal time at the start of that 93 tour. Um, but uh, still the way it worked out is the, the front of house guy knew he was going to be leaving, but they still wanted to have him as long as they could until he had to go and, and go to this other project. So we did, we did rehearsals, but it was as a monitor engineer for me. So, um, basically the way it, it went seven shows into that tour in Europe, um, we just, you know, tag you're it. And I jumped in and, uh, they gave me, I think they said three or four shows. They were going to let me mix and see what the reviews were. So, um, yeah, it was just an overnight thing. Like your monitor engineer, now your front of house go. So it was pretty nerve wracking. I got to tell you. That's, that's amazing. I'm sure. So I, I assume you made it past that third night. I did. Yeah, I did. And, <laughs> and, uh, survived that and went on to mix, uh, the rest of that 93 tour. I mixed them front of house 95. And again, in 98 with Gary Sharon on the, uh, Van Halen three tour. And that was, uh, that was my last time mixing for him. So, uh, that, that first, the first run you did with them, what was, what was, what console were you on? What type of speakers, uh, were you guys using at the time? Yeah, the first one was, um, with audio analyst and, uh, they had their version of the Claire S4. Um, so slightly different design, but inside the same, uh, size box as a Claire S4. Um, so a lot of lumber, let me tell you, man, just a lot of, a <laughs> lot of weight up in the air and it, it did, it sounded good, but it was massive. You know, it was, so the opposite of <clears throat> what line arrays do today of, of focusing the sound, it was just lots of sound going everywhere. <laughs> um, but it was it, it really, I mean, 18 inch low end in that system. It just, it was it really massive. Um, and they as well had a pair of um, uh, proprietary homemade consoles. I, I wish I could remember the name of that console, but it was a, 56 input analog console with uh some cool features but yeah they made that first tour they made uh, their own consoles and that and we had we had them out on the 91 tour i had the monitor version and um and so for that that 93 tour that i mixed it was still on their 
their console. So describe um, what was what was that feeling like early on, uh, and then what was the progression of the feeling while you were mixing them? Uh, was it a constant state the whole time of like, holy cow, I get to do this, uh, or uh, you know, white knuckling? Like, what was what was that experience like? Yeah, I, um, I, it, it never went away for quite some time. That that you know, I'm mixing front of house for Van Halen, and you know. Uh, 10 years ago, I was a bar band guy in Vancouver. You know, it just, it never went away that, uh, that it was just an unbelievable dream come true. Um, but I think I'm sure so many people will understand is you, um, you know, you're just, you're in it. You're, you're in the moment. You, you go through your day, you make sure the PA sounds as good as it can. You do line checks and sound checks and, um, you're just always hoping that uh, people are going to go back and say enough nice things that you get to keep doing it. You know, um, mm-hmm. as a monitor engineer, you have the band's ears on your work, uh, directly as a front of house engineer, you always have to hope on, on management and, or, uh, family members or colleagues, uh, of the bands, uh, to get positive, uh, reviews back. So it's a little bit of a, a different, uh, way that you get your accolades, um, and keep your job. But, uh, yeah, I, um, I, I always just always wanted to improve and, and they, they aren't the easiest band to mix because they have such a strange sound. Um, the guitar sound obviously is, is enormous and amazing, but Alex's drum sound was always a, a weird beast to, to try and emulate from the studio albums to live. So, um, I used to say the the best compliment that I would get was not "Wow, what an amazing sounding show!" It would be "Man, that sounded just like Van Halen," because <laughs> that was mm. kind of that was kind of the way that that mix always turned out with that that weird kind of knocky woody snare sound and lots and lots of cymbals and a, a boxy kick drum. It was it was it was a strange one. You had to really go about getting that with different techniques. So. Um, I think I think uh, the 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 striving to get that you know Alex always wanted his kit to sound like John Bonham and and you'd be at an open air amphitheater, uh, at a, you know in Arizona in a dry hot summer day and and the kick would go and he would go what's that you know so <laughs> um, so it it, uh, it never wore off that there was a a goal that I was trying to to reach and it was sort of unreachable, but, uh, the, you know, every day was an effort to, to get to that Nirvana drum sound. So, you know, that obviously that time the internet didn't exist. Uh, this is a, you know, still early in the, in your career, still somewhat early in the industry. How did you go about knowing how to perfect that craft? You know, um, what types of things were you trying? What were some hard lessons you learned to actually get, get to, um, the desired result from the artist? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, it was very different the way we learned. Um, you know, it, it wasn't, Hey, um, I'm going to see if somebody's put out a, a YouTube video on, you know, different miking techniques to achieve, um, a great result. It was mostly word of mouth. You know, you would, you would talk to your colleagues and other guys who were doing this and kind of say, you know, how do you, 
how do you go about that? And, you know, we learned about, you know, different double miking techniques or, uh, you know, we, we, uh, ended up using triggers on, um, the toms, you know, to open noise gates and, and all these little things that we kind of learned along the way. Um, and, and it was very different then because there was massive, uh, you know, drum monitors and side fills and wedges and, and everything was on stage was so much louder. Um, you had to go about it differently, but it was, it was definitely, uh, much tougher to, to, to learn. And then things like measurement came along in, <clears throat> in my progression, uh, of time. And that was super eye-opening because I don't know how many people can relate to this. If, if you're younger, you, you may not relate to this at all, but, um, you know, back then we were on this major tour, um, playing arenas and with one of the biggest bands in the world. And we didn't really, um, scientifically time align, uh, subs domains and, and it was all done by ear and just, uh, it was just such a, a different animal to, to tune a sound system back then. It was a 58 and your favorite, you know, cassette or dat tape, um, to, you know, and you, you didn't really, um, you know, uh, strategically get the subs in time with the mains by, by measurement, you just sort of move things around until it felt like you got the best impact out of the whole system. So I look back on those days as, as much of a measurement uh, nerd that I am now and think, wow, man, I was mixing this unbelievable band and I didn't know any of this. I didn't even know <laughs> that, it, that all this stuff should be time aligned. And it's, it's kind of hard to remember being that naive about it. Do you remember the first time you saw an RTA? Uh, yeah, there was always RTAs around for sure. Um, but, uh, I do, re I do remember the first time I ever saw somebody operating a SIM machine hmm. and, um, <laughs> I was, I, I definitely was not, um, oh my gosh, I have to have this in my life. Like it just, it kind of was, was voodoo and weird and, and, uh, you know, um, when I started to talk to my colleagues about, Hey, what do you know about this, this, uh, SIM measurement system from Meyer? And they would, they would go, Oh man, no, 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 you don't want that. I mean, have you ever heard one of the systems after these guys do this, you know? <laughs> and there was a prevailing sort of attitude that, um, that measurement, you know, neutered your sound system and just like sort of took away all the life and the fullness and it made it clinical and dry and thin. And, and, you know, I have seen that happen with, uh, with some systems that have been measured and tweaked and, you know, um, into oblivion. But, um, uh, when I saw somebody do it right the first time and, um, <clears throat> the first time somebody actually simmed a sound system for me, um, I, I was absolutely stunned how, how together and, um, perfectly, um, co cohesive the sound system was after this guy had done it. Dave Lawler was his name. He's, uh, he's an amazing, uh, system engineer and SIM operator. And Dave and I worked on Julio Iglesias together in the mid nineties. And then I brought Dave in to do the last Van Halen tour as my 
system guy and measurement guy. So we had, <clears throat> we had a VDOS PA in 1998, first time I'd ever mixed on it. And I had this amazing SIM guy and it was stunning. I mean, the, it was a whole new world. So talking about, uh, that transition there, uh, of speakers, what was, what was, uh, what was that transition like as you saw technology kind of change? What were some of the progressions you saw? What was it was the good, bad, ugly about about that time? Yeah, there was, um, you know, there was more and more uh, options starting to pop up. And back then it was it was kind of a 50-50 split on homemade, you know, homemade, like an S4 from Claire Brothers homemade mm-hmm. or Propri- proprietary. Um, yeah. Proprietary. Yeah, they um they 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 made their own boxes um but jason sound up in vancouver had a version of the s4 that was uh, also very very loud and cool and sounded huge um audio analysts had their s4 claire brothers and then um you started to see well, and then of course you got to talk about the prism system with uh, shoko because that was that was kind of one of the first big sort of scientific moves that came along um, of a whole new way of piecing together a bunch of different boxes to be one thing. And Meyer, of course, was a huge player um, with the uh, MSL3 and then the MSL4 came along and, and they had all these, all these different pieces that you could put up there for long throw versus, you know, near, near fills and, so it, um, and then, um, in 95, we actually took out the, a huge EAW 850 rig on that Van Halen tour. And that was, um, that was a box I had used many times, uh, with, with doing some Ted Nugent stuff at state fairs, county fairs. A lot of these regional companies owned enough 850s to do, uh, you know, any size show. So, um, I'd ha- and then, you know, we were talking turbo sound flashlight floodlight systems were were all over the place um throw a so couple pre- more in there yourself yeah yeah so pre- like pre-line array low what was what was really sticking out to you as you see i mean you saw you saw these you know clusters just getting bigger and bigger um but what what did that mean what did that sound like did you, did you was there a noticeable difference did it, or did it just cover more area or did it feel better like what what was that like yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and, and and I wish there was a way to sonically go back in time and and just <laughs> plant yourself at the console in 1993 with that audio analyst uh, proprietary console and a whole bunch of their S4s. Was was it great? Was was it was it really good? Was it really massive, or was it a mess? You know, that's kind of what I I think uh, because. <clears throat> half of my career has been in the line array, uh, life. And the, the first half was in the trap speakers or, or huge piles of speakers. I do think that, that just about every one of those systems sounded amazing between the stage and front of house. Um, they were, (laughs) (laughs) you know, they were all they were all huge. And if you could get it high enough off the ground where you weren't just pummeling people down front, it was, they were all massive. And like you said, um, if you had to cover more area, like the sides of the stage, you just kept wrapping that stuff around until you covered all of the seats. But I, I really do think that if you could just do a, 
a quick AB between standing, you know, on the second level of, of an arena right directly behind front of house or off to the side a little bit, the, the clarity that you would experience with a line array compared to what was going on back then. I think that that's the big thing that most people would notice. So what, what was your first experience with a line array? Um, so yeah, 98 Van Halen tour, we were, um, thinking what else can we do? You know, what, where can we go from, from that 850 rig that we had that was, uh, again, some days very, very successful and other days, uh, kind of rough, you know, um, cause it was just so many horns, so many high drivers hitting your ear at the same time. It was also, um, it just was very kind of diffused and certain things like guitar sounded great through those old PAs, but something like a vocal or a snare was, uh, just so many arrival times. So, um, so this VDOS, uh, thing starts getting talked about. And, um, I had an opportunity to go and, uh, hear it with a, a Motley at a Motley Crue show. Um, a one audio had, had, uh, purchased one of the first VDOS rigs. And I remember going out to, uh, see the show in Phoenix and just, uh, walk in the arena with the audio engineer in the afternoon while he was playing some, some, uh, ACDC through it or whatever. And I was just like, Oh my God, man, this, there's nothing like this. This is unbelievable how clear it is back here, 250 feet from the speakers and how, um, as you get closer to it down front, it, the, the volume in the sonic, uh, signature really didn't change that much. So, um, that was it. I was convinced in a half an hour. And so we took it out on that, uh, 98 Van Halen tour and I got to mix on that every night. And it, there was, I was never going back after that. <laughs> so, um, what, uh, what was your progression after Van Halen? Um, so let's see, 98. So I, you know, I, in between there, I started to do a few different things. Um, I had mixed a couple of the crooners in between Van Halen tours. I did a, uh, Julio Iglesias tour, uh, where I first met Dave Lawler and, and saw Sim for the first time. And, uh, that was a big Meyer rig. And then, and then I did a Engelbert Humperdinck tour and I started to branch out. And I, that was right around the same time I first started doing corporate audio as well. So I was starting to be more than just a rock and roll mixer. Um, and then, uh, in 2000, Dave, uh, my friend, Dave Lawler, he had been, uh, the system guy for this, uh, Mexican, uh, ballad type singer called, uh, Luis Miguel. And, um, he said, you know, it looks like they're going to change front of house engineers. Would you want to do this? So I, um, I had <clears throat> never, I'd never mixed in stadiums before, which was one of those boxes I wanted to check on my, my list in my career. And, uh, he would do a lot of stadiums in Mexico and Spain, South America. So I did, uh, eventually get, get hired to do that job. And Dave and I worked, uh, for a while on that. Um, <clears throat> and it was, uh, that was a very transitional thing for me. And then it wasn't too long after that, that I, I got to work with Miss Avril Levine 
and Matchbox 20. Both of those came along in the early 2000s and became uh, tours that I did for, uh, I think I worked for each of those art artists for eight years. So um, yeah, I, I was finally starting to get, you know, more names on my on my resume and just more experiences and and challenging artists to work with. So through that progression, you know, you start off, you know, from a, from a level touring standpoint on this, just big arena rock style vibe, you know, and you said you, you transitioned to kind of some crooners, singer songwriter ish type type bands. What was, uh, what was the same? What was different? What, what did you, what was the learning curve there of how you maybe had to treat things differently? And did it, did it, did the experience feel any different, um, being a different type of act? Yeah, certainly. Um, I remember Luis Miguel. One thing I remember about that that was so cool was um, there would be multi generational, uh, you know, members of a family at his shows. Um, he appealed to the younger girls. There were certainly screaming teenagers at his show, but uh, you know, the moms loved him as well because he was kind of, you know, you don't want to put labels on people, but he was kind of like the Latin Michael Buble, if you want to look at hmm. it that way. Like he, he just was super appealing to, um, everyone. And there would be daughters, moms, and grandmothers all together. And that was the first time I ever put subs in the air because I, I had never really thought too much about, um, what was happening down front when you got a bunch of crazy Van Halen fans or, um, you know, Aerosmith poison bands, you know, bands like that, you didn't think much, oh, I, I might be beating them up a little bit down front because they, <laughs> they're probably enjoying that. But um, <laughs> with uh, Luis Miguel, that was the first time I thought, man, we don't want to, we don't want to kill these, these people who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, down front. So, um, so I did very much treat, um, you know, those high, high dollar seats down front differently for the first time. And, um, one thing that was the first time I ever used a VCA for everything except mm. the lead singer. Um, you know, so it was like job one was always to keep that vocal on top. And, you know, if, uh, the drums, if there was a big swelling moment in the song and the whole band just needed to come down for a second, um, that's, that's when I first learned that trick. So it was, um, it was definitely a, a transition from mixing um, a bunch of instruments to sound huge and powerful and and kicking to uh, more sort of refined mixing of more orchestral style um, and and trying to keep keep that vocalist on top all the time. So it, w it was definitely um, you know a, a switch in mentality, and I was getting older as well. So <laughs> it, you know I was. I, I really did enjoy uh, the music. I, I enjoyed the huge strings and and um, orchestration of of these lighter bands. Plus, on uh, on the Engelbert Humperdinck tour, I met my wife, and uh, she was one of the singers. So uh, we we uh, met and eventually got married, and and so that, that was definitely a, a good career <laughs> nice. choice on my part. Um. <laughs> At any point in your um, in your career, your progression here, um, 
how much were you thinking about, um, hey, I got to make this sound like the record and I got to please the band versus connecting that experience uh, with the audience and knowing how much that holds in your hand and being able to read the audience and, and be part of um, translating that, that medium? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's a great topic of discussion um, because especially now with, with uh, plugins and the ability to, to quickly adjust effects and, and um, you know, really just, um, you know, you can, you can do almost anything today when back in the, in the 80s and 90s, uh, every everything that you needed to create, whether it was a a second slap delay or a big uh, flange thing or something, and that all had to be another device. You know, you couldn't you couldn't just uh, you know throw another plug in on a on a channel quickly. It, it always had to be another piece of hardware and another aug send or uh, a channel to return it into. So. Um, <clears throat> So I think today it's much easier to, you know, make a band sound just like the album where back then you, you could do it, but, um, it wasn't always easy to do it and you had to carry a little more gear around to do it. So, but, but I still feel like, I remember the first, uh, question I asked the, the Van Halen guys when I got that gig mixing out of moving from monitors to front of house. The first question was, so what, what album should I shoot for? You know, what the sound of, of what album is the one, you know, you, you've just had a, uh, an album come out recently. Should I go after that? And it was funny because the, the one thing Alex said was, you know, I don't really, you know, I, I've never 100% loved the sound of my drums <laughs> on any of our albums. It, they, he, he always felt like they never quite got that thing that he was after. And so he just, you know, he said, you know, you've, you've been on stage with us. You're, you've done monitors for us. You know what we sound like, just make that sound great in the PA. So for them, it was definitely, um, there was, there was the album sound and then there was the concert experience. So, for for Van Halen at least, um, they just wanted they just wanted people to experience, you know, their live sound louder. That's awesome. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, especially for for an artist like it. I imagine you know some of the probably more pop artists you've worked with in more recent years. That conversation is probably different. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, you know. Um, Bands like Avril and, um, you know, Matchbox, they definitely had some, you know, they had some specific, you know, major tonality changes on instruments and things from one song to the next. And then, you know, things came along like, uh, you know, fractals and Kempers and things. So they were able to control in a lot of ways. They could control, you know, the change of the guitar sound from, verse to chorus to bridge to song to song and we did pay a lot of attention in rehearsals to you know getting each portion of the song um 
right from the source. And then if there was uh, interesting effects and stuff, I would work hard in rehearsals to get those things all saved and programmed and, you know, triggered uh, with the snapshots for each song. So um, definitely a, a much different experience than um, than those early albums and, and uh, those earlier uh, tours. And one thing to remember too is um, you can hear that stuff now in the current PA systems. Um, it's not just you fighting <laughs> a room all night just to make, <laughs> you know, kick and snare sound like kick and snare and not uh, just a big wash of, of energy. Because back in those days with the PA boxes just pointing everywhere up in the rafters, sideways to cover those seats, but hitting the walls on the side. And, you know, it just was, it was survival a lot of nights trying to just get a clean mix through. So that cool flange effect that happens on, you know, this one part of a song, it just didn't translate the way it does now. What was, um, what was the camaraderie or relationship like between other engineers, system techs back in this time? Was there any bit of cutthroatness of like, I'm going to keep my secrets to myself because I want to keep my next gig? Or how much of you uh, were actually helping each other out and sharing secrets and, hey, we just want to make live sound better? What was, what was that ebb and flow? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I, I truly do feel like today there's... A, a much bigger uh, feeling of sharing the knowledge than, than there was initially. Um, now, uh, I, I'm going to say some things about Canadians, but, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when I first started, all the Canadian engineers, we were all just so stoked to be doing this. We had, There was such a, a thriving Canadian, West, Western Canadian for sure, uh, bar scene that was, you know, in, in any one big Canadian city, there was at least 10, you know, bars to play on a Saturday that had like a, a, a band with full production. And so we, we were all very much into sharing what we were learning. When I came to the States um, and moved to Chicago in 86, I felt like people were holding stuff to their chest a little more. And you'd kind of, you know, be in the shop and someone was building a uh, a rig for a local show or a f little festival that was coming up or something. And you'd go peek over the shoulders and sometimes they'd be like, Hey, Hey man, 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 back off, back off. <laughs> there was this feeling of, you know, no, no, I don't want you to see what I'm doing. Cause this is my special secret sauce thing that I do. So, um, but I, f I feel like now that's not so much a thing. I think, uh, especially with YouTube and, uh, especially with, uh, you know, COVID coming and everyone being, um, you know, stuck in their house and quarantined and like the sharing thing just opened up everyone, you know, every, every manufacturer, every company wanted to take that time to do tutorials and, and podcasts and, and webinars. And I, I feel like, you know, our industry really showed, uh, its strength and its, true colors during this quarantine of being a, a, a sharing time. Let's all just become better at our job. And uh, that's, that's pretty awesome. So it sounds like though that you early on had a mindset of wanting to share uh, because you, you wrote a book. 
we'll talk about um but this was this was quite a while ago at this point <laughs> um what yeah, uh it sure is <laughs> um <laughs> what so you, you wrote uh professional sound reinforcement techniques and this came out in the year 2000 right yep so what what uh what led you to uh to write that um at that at that time what what was what brought that about well um uh as we had we've kind of mentioned like there wasn't youtube there there wasn't a clear uh sort of oh i just got to go here and i can learn more about live sound um i i remember in so it would have been 91 when i was doing monitors for poison was the first time i had heard about uh full sale down in in orlando in winter park and i and um some of those guys came out to a, a show a poison show in at the uh, orlando arena and um said hey um would would you ever come and and lecture you know just and i i was like wow man i don't you know people and they said yeah it'd be about three hours and i'm like man i don't have three hours worth of (laughs) stuff to say about being a monitor engineer but um it, it got me thinking that there are things that i know that i do on a a daily basis that would be super helpful for somebody who's coming up through the the club scene or the uh mixing at their church or um just working you know for a for a local band or something um because when when i was coming up in the early 80s i i found it extremely hard to find that stuff so um i i i actually the book was an initially um entitled the working title was uh mix memos because i used to carry this little you know, memos, steno pad around in my back pocket. And whenever I, I did something like the way I would go about, uh, tuning a Tom, uh, through the PA, um, blending a snare top and a snare bottom. And, um, you know, just things like adding a touch of high end to a vocal and pulling some low mid to get it to, to pop in the PA, uh, and sit on top of the mix better. All these little, just little techniques that I would do. I realized that, um, I do that because after, you know, 10, 15 years of doing this, that seems to always help. So I started writing down things that I know are always going to be beneficial to, uh, solve a problem. And my, my initial goal was to have these little memos that were, um, that were, a, a little mini lesson and that's, and I just started writing stuff down as often it, as it occurred to me. And, and then on my days off in my hotel room, when I was touring, I would just turn it into a Microsoft word doc, you know, and, and, uh, eventually I had 125, 150 of these tips and I started shopping it as a, as a book. Hmm. So interestingly enough, um, this was written pre-digital console. So what was, yeah. <laughs> what was your first experience with digital consoles? Um, gosh, 2000, um, <clears throat> three, 2003, I think, um, I got hired by, uh, Avril Lavigne to go and take over on her first tour. And that was, uh, kind of the, the, the first time somebody said okay um just so you know it's going to be a digital console a yamaha pm1d 
and I went, oh, yikes, here we go. Cause I knew I had to figure this out. Um, um, and I learned a few lessons about snapshots and, uh, scene recall <laughs> parameters <laughs> right off the bat. I made a few glitches the first couple days of, of, uh, you know, getting the kick drum to sound fantastic and then hitting the recall on the second, uh, song of the show and all my EQ went away, you know, so I had to, <laughs> had to go in and start messing with the scope of what gets recalled and what, what gets, uh, uh, stored every time you s- store and then recall the next song. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, that was the first time. And, um, it was a tour, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, being, a someone who bounced around and did festivals and did, you know, a club one day and a, and an arena the next, always on someone else's gear. So the advantages of, of a digital console weren't, I didn't really see it at first because I just wished I had an, a great sound and analog board. Um, but it wasn't until I started to travel more and, um, you know, we would go to different countries and do, uh, do, do festivals and do shows that, and I could walk in with my thumb drive and my, my show all stored and saved and recall recallable that I really started to get that. Yeah, there's something to this. It makes a lot of sense. Well, it sounds like, I mean, you embraced it somewhat early on in that, you know, if you were using, trying to use snapshots and stuff early on, that's not, that's not characteristic of someone who is just apprehensive and using it because they had to. I mean, you, it seems like you, you had the drive to see, Hey, how can this actually improve what I'm doing? What, 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 what can this do for me? As opposed to, you know, some of the other old school guys who are just like, ah, analog, <laughs> well, what's this digital, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, it, I think it makes a big difference of whether your first digital tour is something you build or is it something you inherit. So I, I jumped in on a tour. Um, they were probably a third of the way through that, that, um, first Avril Lavigne tour. So, uh, my friend, Mark LaCour, who was mixing, he, you know, my, uh, first thought is always, you know, that this person's been out here for a long time with this tour. I'm not going to reinvent, uh, the wheel, uh, you know, in my first week being here, I'm going to start with what they've built and go mm-hmm. from there. So, um, as I've learned over time, I've done tours where I've used no snapshots. I mean, uh, the last Frampton tour that I did, um, uh, last summer, um, was an SSL L550 console, beautiful sounding console, great sounding, uh, K2PA, uh, amazing sounding inputs from the stage and they are just uh they're a band that sort of self mixes themselves level wise and stuff great dynamics and there was no reason to use snapshots so there's still times where i i go really analogy old school in my setup and design but on on you know on this one um i had to learn with some uh battle scars i had to learn you know how to use snapshots in in the best way but i i did i i definitely could feel that things were changing and i had to i had to figure this out that's cool um we haven't touched you did you work a journey right i did yeah so when 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 did journey come about uh that was 2012 was the first uh first tour i did with them um 
you know how this industry is where you you work with people they become colleagues and sometimes great friends that you stay in touch with for years so um my friend rob kern was the drum tech for van halen in 1991 and he eventually became production manager um for van halen and uh eventually uh went to work with journey and was the uh pm tm with them for for the the you know the early 2010 years and um so he he often said to me if there's an opportunity i'd like to get you in on this because i think you'd you'd love it and you'd do a great job so my my chance finally came in 2012 and and uh i got to go out there and mix that and it was dream come true i mean oh my gosh i was you know like i think almost everyone i was a massive journey fan in the in the 80s and and i couldn't believe i was getting the chance to do it that's awesome so um all right you know all those years with van halen there's got to be some some fun stories of uh, either shenanigans or crazy shows or uh, gear malfunctions what's some what's some good juicy stuff from the uh, van halen time oh my gosh well I think a lot of the shenanigans were over by the time I got there. Um, honestly, I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was a, a lot different. Um, the, the drinking had, had almost entirely gone away. Um, but, uh, we had some fun over on, on, uh, stage, right. They would do monitors from stage, right on that one. And on my first tour, I was, uh, I was uh, the monitor engineer, and I get I got to share a platform um, that that was a like a rolling uh, wing that they we would build at the end of the stadium, and then once the stage was built, we would roll it into place. Um, but I got to share that with uh, Mike Anthony's tech, Craig DeFalco, and and so during the show, it was always me and Craig under this uh, curtained off closed off little rolling wing and Mike, uh, would pop in every time, you know, there was a drum solo or a guitar solo or, or Sammy would do this little solo bit, um, every night where he would play acoustic and sing a couple songs on his own. So there was like three opportunities during the, during the night for Mike to come down there and hang out. And, uh, you know, he's, <laughs> He is the nicest guy in rock and roll, without a doubt. Mike Anthony is just, he is just such a wonderful, wonderful person. And, um, but, and, and he was, he kept the rock and roll mentality uh, a lot longer than most people where he just loves a couple shots of Jack Daniels. And um, so, so every, you know, all the opening acts were always invited to Mad Anthony's Cafe is what, what they would call <laughs> our little our little wing uh and it was fully curtained off so all all these uh so all of a sudden it'd be eddie's guitar solo and you know the whole arena is just enthralled with watching eddie play but all of a sudden you could notice all these people piling into the stage right uh um this little curtained off area and and, and after a while started they started posting a security guy out like at these three points during the show because they knew that this was a time where you had to have like kind of the Mad Anthony's Cafe pass to get into, and and there was there would be shots and oh my gosh it was so much fun, and I'm <laughs> I'm 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 there you know trying to like keep an eye on Sammy or 
or Alex or Eddie, whoever's doing their solo. I'm trying to like still do my gig mixing monitors and people are like bumping into me and I'm keeping them, you know, keeping the drinks away from the console. And yeah, it was, uh, it was rock and roll the way it, it should be. It was Absolutely. a lot of fun. That's awesome. How about, uh, you know, the, the, the guitar tone uh, from Van Halen is so iconic. What was, um, what was that experience like and making sure that you translated that right and how that came across? Was there ever conversation back and forth on um, making sure that it, it was represented right? Yeah, for sure. I, I, I remember a couple times in rehearsals where we had some time and I would throw all kinds of mics up there. Like it, it was a pretty simple setup. Um, there was a lot of cabinets on stage, but most of them were, were dummies. There was really only three live cabinets. And so there was a center dry and a left right, uh, Marshall cab on, or a PV cab on each side that was, um, um, had, you know, effects, uh, looping in them. And, and so the, the center one was always dry and the left, right were affected. So, and, and Eddie always had a lot of effects on his guitar, some great bounce delays and harmonizing and, and great stuff. So getting those three things to blend together was the trick because the affected cabinets did sound quite different, uh, from the dry one. But I mean, you know, you can, you can just imagine what that sound was like. There was mm -hmm. not a lot of work to have to do to that. It was unbelievable. But every time we started the tour, I would uh, I would usually get about two to three weeks uh, just sitting in a rehearsal place in Los Angeles in a separated room with my console and some near field speakers. And I would just try absolutely every mic that I could think of to um, to get it to be as good as it could be. And so often just went back to using 357s you know it just always seemed to capture his sound in the best way um but uh he was um uh, you know he he really wasn't hugely involved in his sound out front he just you know he would listen to a board tape every now and then i guess or you know his friends would come out and colleagues would come out and as long as they said it sounded his tone was great and sounded great. He, he trusted what we were doing. That's great. So, uh, looking back, you know, over your career, um, what, what would you say has, um, changed the most and what has stayed the same? Hmm. Yeah. Well, definitely the, the two, you know, the two things that are just so apparent are, analog to digital consoles for sure. And, um, and massive walls of speakers down to, uh, small, you know, just, uh, accurate and powerful and optimized, uh, sound systems that we would have looked at in the, in the eighties and just said, there's no way. I mean, I remember the first time I saw a photo of VDOSC um, friend, uh, I believe actually Ken Newman was the one who sent that to me hmm. and it was an L acoustics ad and it was a Bastille day in, in France. And there was a bunch of VDOS delay towers down like, you know, the huge, um, uh, um, streets in, in Paris and 
just, you know, hundreds of thousands of people just as far as the eye could see. And there was these clusters of VDOS hanging. And I just giggled. I remember I just laughed and I said, there is no way that something that small could cover that many people. It, it was just my, my first thought. And uh, so, like I said, when I went and heard that sound system with, with uh, Motley Crue um, in, a, in a big arena in Phoenix, just, you know, one, one cluster of 12 boxes aside facing out at the audience, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I absolutely could not believe that this could work. Um, so I, th I think uh, those two things are definitely absolute game changers. Um, what has stayed the same? You know, I think, I think microphone technology has not really changed all that much. You know, jump in if you, if you think there's something that's, uh, that's, you know, a game changer microphone wise, but I still find with certain bands, I mean, Peter Frampton is a huge Sure fan. So we just used 58s on his vocal. He used uh, 56s on his guitar. Um, you know, these, these mics that have been around forever that still sound great in these great sounding PAs. And um, so the, that's one thing I think has, has stayed the same. Um, the way we do things, the way we go about, uh, you know, line checking, sound checking. I think a lot of that has stayed very much the same. Although in any engineer's day that the tuning portion is probably a lot different now with measurement and with, um, with, uh, just the, the, the processing software that we have with all these, uh, sound systems, it's, it's a, it's a lot different than it was when you just spoke in a mic and you grabbed a couple uh, frequencies on a graphic mm -hmm. and, and tuned the system that way, I think. Uh, but um, I still think that we still kind of go about things the same way as far as just, you know, get the PA, get it tuned, do a line check, do a sound check. I, I think sort of the, the process has stayed the same. Any, any thoughts on that? No, I mean that's it's an interesting thought. As actually, you know, like as I asked the question, and you know, we talk about you know speakers and consoles. It's I I had that thought before you mentioned it was like yeah, microphone technology. It's you know it's it's kind of funny how um, yet new mics come out all the time, and it's it. But at the end of the day, has it really changed the industry? <laughs> you right. know, like that's a that's an interesting uh, train of thought that I think needs to be dug into some more. As to you know, I think we could probably you know, think about maybe why, and it's like, well, what, why would, is there, is there a need for future innovation of microphones? That's a, that's an interesting, um, rapid trail to go down. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, and you know, you don't ever want to take anything away from these companies who make microphones because like you said, new stuff's coming out all the time. Um, you know, I just, uh, I just tried out and, uh, purchased a, a warm audio microphone, um, for my house. Cause my son is starting to, uh, want to sing more and, and record and, and, you know, doing all these, these webinars and stuff. Um, it's nice to have a really nice sound in large diaphragm microphone. But, uh, I, you know, I remember back in the <clears throat> Van Halen days, I used a bunch of, uh, audio technica mics on, on a couple tours. And, um, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I had to buy them all myself. You know, they said, it would be great if our microphones were on your tour. So they gave me a bunch mm -hmm. of microphones and, um, you know, but I was using, um, 
you know, studio condenser mics, large diaphragm for the overheads and things. And, you know, there's, there's certain things that you can capture with a, a, a large diaphragm microphone that you just can't do with a pencil condenser. But, um, you know, my, my sort of, uh, sort of, uh, operating procedure these days is I, I usually try to go for as few, um, condenser mics on stage as possible. I'll go for as mm. many, uh, cardioid dynamic mics, no phantom power required. Uh, they sometimes are more stable and hold up in, in big climate change. And, um, you know, the, the PAs sound so good. And a lot of these classic mics like, uh, you know, an SM5758 or, uh, some of the, the Sennheiser dynamic mics sound just great on their own. So I, um, mm-hmm. I love to experiment with mics. If I can put a, a different mic on a source and immediately hear 10, 15, 20% improvement in the sound, I'm there right away. I'll go for mm-hmm. it. But I do think of mics in a bigger picture of, you know, of atmospheric stuff and phantom power. And if a line goes bad and, you know, it popping and, you know, thumping in the away in the PA, um, sometimes I'm just happier to have uh, dynamic mics all the way around. Nice. So, uh, l- looking back, um, what has, what's been the core of why you do what you do? What, what, what has driven you? Well, I mean, it's just the, the best job in the world. I mean, there's no two ways about it. I've, I've gotten into other sides of things. Uh, you know, we both share the corporate side of this business and, um, you know, for, for anyone who's listening, who's never made one lavalier mic sound good through a hugely distributed, uh, system in a, in a big echoey slappy ballroom, uh, when you got the CEO of Pfizer or someone up there, um, it is, it's enough to, you know, make a, you know, a man out of the boys, you know, it really is, it it can be extremely difficult to just make that one mic so clear and, and precise. Um, so I do embrace my, my corporate side of things and just being highly organized and making sure you're on top of every cue and all the things that are important in corporate. But, but that love of, um, you know, just making a band sound huge at a nice, comfortable volume and, and people jumping out of their seats and cheering. And I mean, you know, what, how else do you get to do this? If you're a studio engineer and you, you create the most amazing mix in a studio, you still don't ever really get to see the, the fans respond to it. Um, unless you go and see a show of that band that you just recorded their new hit song, but we get to experience, uh, instant, you know, gratification for our good work. And especially if you, if you're having a fantastic night out at front of house and you just, you just know the room sounds great. The, the temperature's right. The humidity's right. Everything is just popping that night. You, you, there's no question why you went into this line of work.
I hope you enjoyed the beginning of this journey as we explore the history of live sound together. If you enjoyed this conversation, I would like to ask a few things. First, make sure you subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. Second, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Throughout the week, you will see various pictures and stories from the past. Lastly, but most importantly, please tell a friend. Help us get the word out about this project. Please check out and support The Clinic. Their mission is simple. They exist to empower and heal roadies and their families by providing resources and services tailored to the struggles of the touring lifestyle. The Clinic is committed to providing a safe space for roadies and their families to heal while off the road and to advocate for and empower them to obtain a healthy work environment while on the road. Go to theroadyclinic.com for more info. Do you have a story to tell? Or maybe you want to know more about a specific topic within the history of live sound. You can send me a message on our website, howwegotloud.com. After all, this is a journey for all of us to take together.